We can speak of a happy new year. We can speak of a happy new century. We can speak of a happy new millennium. But really, the issue at hand is, will you have a happy eternity? You see, I don't know what your year will be like. Many of you are going, goodness me, I hope it's not like this past year. Some of you suffered the loss of loved ones. Some of you suffered the loss of a marriage. Some of you suffered the loss of jobs. Some of you have been diagnosed with cancer or diabetes or some other illness or affliction. And you don't know what the future holds for you. Some of you here today had a marvelous year, and some of those things are waiting for you this year. I don't know. None of us knows. And last week, we were, my wife and I were in New Jersey for Christmas, and my brother-in-law was preaching. And he made a statement that's been ringing around in my ears all week. He said this, life in the long term doesn't provide a whole lot of hope. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Life in the long term, all by itself, doesn't provide a whole lot of hope. And it got me to thinking, what is the basis for hope? As we set, sit here at the outset of a new year, the outset of a new century, what is the basis for hope? And I don't just mean hope now, I mean long-term hope. Is it in man's ingenuity? Is it in man's resourcefulness? Is it that can-do American spirit? Where is our hope? I believe Psalm 102 gives us a very sober and a very anchored basis for hope. So won't you pray with me as we turn there? Gracious Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts not of stone, but hearts of flesh, warmed up to receive the good news of the gospel. And may you enable us all the more to believe this glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Speak now, O Lord, for we, your servants, are listening for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 102. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly, for my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. For you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. 
for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. If you've ever taken off on a very rainy, drizzly day or a stormy day, you will know the experience of the darkness that is around you as the plane takes off, seeing the water driplets kind of coming across your window. But if you wait long enough, your plane will break through the clouds and then suddenly, you know, clear blue sky, a glorious radiant sun, and the clouds below look like a soft cottony blanket that would suspend you and hold you for a nice nap. And then, if you're landing into another rainy place, you'll cut right through those clouds again and find yourself back into the grays, into what the Scots call a good drich day. I would submit to you that that's the, the flavor and the flow of Psalm 102. It starts with the most dreary sense. A man who is besieged, a man who feels afflicted, a man who knows misery, in great measure, a man who feels the shortness of his days, a man who feels estranged from his relationships, a man who knows agony and he is crying out to his God, a man in a storm. But the psalm takes the turn at verse 12 when the psalmist looks up and gets a glimpse of his God. And it's as if that plane has broken through the clouds and suddenly sees the sun and the brilliance behind it. And the next set of verses from chapter 12 to 22 focus on the glory of that God, the glory of the sun, the radiance that the psalmist beholds. And then as the plane coming down back into a cloudy or rainy city, the psalmist again in verse 23 is reminded of his plight. But this time, he does not forget the sun which lies behind 
clouds. That's the flow of Psalm 102. And I want to consider that flow for a minute because I think it's important at the outset of a year in wrestling with where is our long-term hope to consider what the psalmist both soberly and gloriously has to say to us. First off, in the first 11 verses, I would submit to you as we think of it today that the changing of the calendar, the changing of the year, the changing of the century does not change the reality of who we are and the life we live. What do you know? Your fears, your anxieties, your miseries, your afflictions are all Y2K compliant. Are they not? They all successfully made that transition from Friday night to Saturday morning. If you were diagnosed last year with cancer, your cancer is with you today. If you were diagnosed with HIV virus, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, heart disease, infertility, the same plight and affliction is with you today. Our loneliness made the transition. Consider the loneliness of the psalmist in verses 6 to 8. Those who are in difficult or who have suffered broken marriages are continuing in difficult or broken marriages. Other relationships may still be estranged. Our sinfulness made the transition. Selfishness, greed, pride, arrogance, envy, all of it made the transition to the new year. And brothers and sisters, our mortality made the transition. To put it succinctly, we are dying men and dying women. And if anything time marks, it marks our approach to the end. We Americans do everything we can to forget our mortality. It used to be that the cemeteries were in the churchyards, so that every week as you came to church, as you walked up the walk, you passed the graves of those who had gone before you, those who had kept the faith, those who had kept the torch of the church alive and held steadfastly to the truth. You walked past their graves on your way in and on your way out. You were weakly reminded of the transience of this life and your need for a long-term hope. But today, the cemeteries and the graveyards are conveniently removed away from our main corridors of life. You have to go out of your way, typically, to find a cemetery, to go into one, and so the graves are not in the ordinary course of your thinking and your doing. Not only have we removed the deceased from us, but we move, removed the process of dying largely from us. Chiefly today, dying is done in hospitals, in hospices, under the care of professionals, away from the ordinary experiences of the family. Now we're starting to see a move away from that, I understand. Some are coming home to die when diagnosed with terminal illness. But by and large, death and dying remains far removed from our society. And the reason is that the goal is to keep death and dying as far removed from our consciousness as possible. 
Indeed, I, I ran into an editorial uh, yesterday in the New York Times, a very uh, noted and, and uh, uh, popular editorial writer titled his page, Why Die? And basically it was uh, considering in, in light of our medical advances against disease, in light of our uh, organ transplants, in light of the fact that longevity from 1900 to 2000 has increased some 30 years, from the age of 46 in 1900 to, to 76 today. Neurologists around the country are working on breaking a genetic code that tells your body to decay, or so they think. So the question is, why die? We're making an assault on death, American optimism. But I would suggest to you, the psalmist has it right. We are withering grass. We are a lengthening shadow. Our lives are measured in days. And the psalmist is saying, I am helpless to change that. You know, New Year's resolutions are difficult because they apply to last year's heart. New Year's bravado about man still faces last year's cowardice. My wife, for Christmas, gave me a book of speeches, and I was reading in there a speech by William Faulkner, one of our native sons here in the Mid-South, when William Faulkner had won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. And at the time, many of you will recall that the nation was, was very much afraid of nuclear holocaust. Bomb shelters were built, and there was great fear to abound. And William Faulkner, in his speech, wanted to address that fear of mankind's ultimate annihilation. And he said this, the basest of all things is to be afraid. I decline to accept the end of man. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. You see, Faulkner's basis of hope was that man had a capacity for virtue. He had a capacity for courage. He had a capacity for love. But what his speech didn't tell you, but which the narrator did, is that Faulkner came up to give his speech haggard and hungover. You see, the night before, he had engaged in very heavy drinking to settle his nerves because he was afraid to address so large a crowd. Now, I want you to consider the irony of a man who is telling us not to be afraid of nuclear holocaust, but who himself is so profoundly afraid of speaking in public that he makes himself very drunk. You see, brothers and sisters, we're all like William Faulkner. No matter how much bravado and how much eloquence we may muster in the world, we cannot change by ourselves our weak and our dying constitution. And the psalmist very soberly faces his own plight in verses 1 to 11. But the psalmist, very thankfully, doesn't stop there. For you see, while changing the calendar cannot change the reality of who we are, the calendar cannot 
change the reality of who God is. And it is to that great reality that the psalmist turns in verses 12 to 22. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You know, in the modern era, the world has been quick to want to hail God's end. Frederick Nietzsche, in 1882, issued his famous statement, God is dead. In the Russian Soviet state, they turned a Russian Orthodox Church into a museum of religion. Thankfully, today, that museum of religion has been restored to a very active and thriving church. Even in 1957, the first director general of UNESCO wrote, and I quote, operationally, God is beginning to resemble not a ruler, but the last fading smile of a cosmic Cheshire cat, appealing to the imagery of Alice in Wonderland. Despite God's naysayers, the psalmist says, God lives on. His demise is rather prematurely subscribed to. And not only does his dominion and his authority remain intact, verse 12, but his covenant love and his compassion for his people remains unchanging and eternal, verses 13 and 14. And indeed, not only his love for his covenant people, which are his today, but that gospel love where he is going to use the gospel to save men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. That gospel love is going to go forth and conquer the nations, bringing all to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Verses 15 to 22. The psalmist celebrates not only eternal God, but a God with eternal love and with an eternal gospel that is going forth no matter what opposition may lay ahead of him. Brothers and sisters, even the universe's age is incomparable to God, says the psalmist in verses 26, 25, 26, 27. He engages that for a moment. You know, scientists tell us that the universe is some 20 billion years old. Indeed, the earth is said to be some four or five billion years old. And yet, the scriptures tell us the universe itself is dying. It is subject to corruption, Romans chapter 8. It is destined to be destroyed by fire, 2 Peter chapter 3. Its billions of years will, be, will not protect it from future destruction. And yet, God goes on. He will change the universe like a man changing his clothes, says the psalmist. God can even be measured by the length of age of the universe. But the psalmist doesn't stop in celebrating God's eternity or God's unchangingness or immutability, if you prefer. But he celebrates God's immutability and eternal nature because that's our hope. It's because the fact that God lives eternally that the church lives eternally. That's the significance of verse 28. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Brothers and sisters, our earthly lives will end. Our nation's preeminence, our nation's existence, should Jesus tarry, will end. 
our Western civilization, should Jesus tarry, will end. If history tells us anything, nations come and go, civilizations come and go. The only thing that endures is God. And yet, the scripture also says, because that good and sovereign Lord endures forever, the church will endure forever. The ancient of days, the alpha and omega, he who is the beginning and the end, he who is, he who was, he who is to come, he has claimed for himself a people, and the church will endure to the end. The church will go on. We may be buffeted in this life. We may be buffeted this year. We may be afflicted. We may be downcast. We may be perplexed. We may be seduced. We may fall. And yet gloriously, the saints, the church will be preserved because no one, as Rocky prayed, can snatch us from the hand of Almighty God in fact, Jesus says, I, the Son, have you in my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. He says, the Father who is greater than I am, he has you in his hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. As if to say, together, the triune unity is the pledge of our assurance and hope. So the church has a God who remains the same, and he cannot let go of us without denying himself, which he will not do. So brothers and sisters, where's our long-term hope? And by long-term, I mean long. I'm not talking about a century. I'm not talking about a millennium. I'm talking about eternity. Where is your long-term hope? It's in Jesus Christ, him alone. Actually, the writer of Hebrews takes verses 25 and 27 that celebrate God's unchanging eternity, and he applies them to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, and he applies it to the Hebrews who were a besieged, battered, downcast group of people. And he says, this Savior goes on forever. He remains the same. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So I ask you this morning, is your hope in an expiring universe or is your hope in an enduring God? Are you part of the expiring universe or are you part of the enduring church? I don't know what this year holds for you. I don't know what much of this century holds for you. I suspect for all of us, nearly all of us at least, this next century portends our death. But we have a hope that goes beyond our death because God has laid, claimed, he has laid claim to a people that he treasures more than the universe itself. He's going to change the universe like a man changes clothes. He's going to hang on to his people forever. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish divine in the 17th century, wrote this to a discouraged Christian. Your rock is Christ, 
and it is not your rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. You may be in a rough sea today. You may be in a rough sea in this coming year. But brothers and sisters, you have a rock, an eternal rock. And I urge you, place your hope and your trust in him. He will not allow your hope to be disappointed. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we have the hope of eternity because we possess Christ. We thank you that we cannot be disappointed in him. And Father, we do pray for those who are battered or who will be battered in these coming days, weeks, and months, that you would give us all the hope, that you would give us all the faith to know that whatever comes in this life, we cannot be let go of by you, that there is long-term hope. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.